Amen. Well, it's good to be here. Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you have your Bibles uh, with you, would you open up to Psalm 85? I feel like it was just uh, yesterday that I was with you, exactly a week ago, but time has, has flown by. So we're here another week. The Lord brings us through various ups and downs, various trials, various hardships, and He brings us back uh, week after week uh, to His house to be uh, with our, our spiritual family. So it is a joy to be back with you uh, this evening, looking at Psalm 85. So again, let me read this uh, psalm for us, and then we will dive in. Psalm 85, uh, this is God's Word uh, written for you and for me today. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Father, we ask that You would give us insight into Your Word, that You would show us Your truth, that You would show us more of who You are and more of who we are in You and the hope that we have in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 85 is a revival psalm. Uh, it is a psalm of restoration. It's a psalm for discouraged Christians. It's a psalm for all of us who want to be restored and, and, and revived and have a greater taste for the love of God towards us in Christ Jesus. Simply put, it is a psalm for those who want to be revived in our walk with the Lord. Now, most scholars date this psalm to the period after the exile. It's what we call a post-exilic psalm. This reminds us uh, a little bit of our Old Testament history. In the year 586, God's people were exiled. They were conquered by Babylon. The temple was destroyed and they were taken in exile back to the pagan nation of Babylon. Uh, a few decades later, in the year 538, the Persian Empire had arisen and was now the dominant power uh, of the day. The Persians conquered the Babylons and the Persians permitted the Israelites to return back to their homeland in Jerusalem. And no doubt the initial reaction of the Israelites upon returning back to their land was one of joy. It was a reaction of, of, of joy and delight. They were returning back to 
the promised land, back to that land that the Lord had promised to give them. But reality quickly set in. Uh, life back in the land was filled with trial. Life back in the land was filled with difficulty, filled with hardship. Things weren't going as they thought they would. The early chapters of Ezra, Haggai chapter 1 tells of the despair that the people of God quickly entered into. The temple was built and some were rejoicing, others were wailing because it did not have the, the glory that Solomon's temple had. Life had, was not unfolding as they thought it would back in the land. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3 gives us something of a summary of how of the spirit of the day during that time. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Great trouble and shame. They longed to be restored. They longed for a revival, we might say, a revival of the spirit of the Lord to be at work in them, in their hearts, and in the people of God. And thus Psalm 85 gives us some wonderful instruction on what our prayer should be as we long for the same thing in our own hearts, in our own churches, in our own day. Uh, the psalm is laid out fairly simply, three uh, basic sections, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist looks back. Verses 4 through 7, the psalmist prays in the present. And then verses 8 through 13, the psalmist looks forward. So a look back, a present prayer, and then a look forward. So first, verses 1 through 3. In this section, the psalmist looks back. The people of God remember. You'll note the verbs are all in the past tense. O Lord, you were favorable. You restored. You forgave. You covered. You withdrew. You turn. The people are remembering. They're reflecting back on God's prior work in their heart and in their lives. And specifically in this context, they're looking back on God's work of grace, his work of forgiveness and restoring them and bringing them back from the exile back to the promised land. It's hard for us to imagine the despair and the 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 struggle and the trial and the earth-shattering, life-changing event that was the exile. As the pagan Babylonians swept into the promised land, swept into Israel, leveled the temple, and took the people of God back to Babylon. It's hard for us to, 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 to grasp the life-changing event that was the exile. But God in His grace and His mercy brought them back. So first the psalmist looks back to the mercy of God, the goodness of God, and bringing them back from exile, back to the promised land. Now in the Old Testament, the Exodus event, the first Exodus, the Exodus that Moses led the people out of Egypt is the dominant image and metaphor of salvation throughout the Old Testament. The dominant image for God's redemption. But the return from exile, the context of our psalm, is presented as something of a second exodus. 
It's presented as something of a, a second redemption. And again, that is what is in view here. You'll note in these, lang in these verses, as the psalmist is looking back, there is salvation type of language. The return from exile is presented, presented as something of a, of a salvation, of a redemption type of event. Look back at verse 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sin. And the idea of covering their sin is the idea of atonement, that God, that God makes atonement and He covers over our sins before the Lord. Verse uh, later on in the same, in the same uh, text, you withdrew all your wrath. So the picture we get in this first section is one of God's people discouraged, they're disheartened, they're in despair. Life is not unfolding like they thought it would. And yet there's a longing to be restored, a longing to be revived. So the first thing they do is to look back and to remember God's goodness, His faithfulness, His prior acts of redemption and salvation in their lives. To put it simply, they look back to God's grace and to His saving hand in their past. We find the same pattern of believers looking back of believers remembering what God has done in their lives in the past, we find that same pattern all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Psalms in particular. Just a couple of examples. Psalm 77, verses 11 and 12. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty on your mighty deeds. Psalm 143, verse 5. Let me read that text for us. Psalm 143, verse 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. Calvin, commenting on this verse, uh, puts it this way. Nothing contributes more effectually to encourage us to come to the throne of grace in the present than the remembrance of God's former benefits. So, dear Christian, I ask you today, how much more should this be true of us? The Israelites in this psalm, they looked back. They looked back to God's goodness, to His mercy, in restoring them from the exile. But what do we look back to? We look back to that once and for all climactic event to which that return from exile pointed. Of course, we look back to the once and for all work of Christ in his death and resurrection, to the climactic event in which salvation was purchased for us on the cross of Calvary. Dear friends, would it not change how we live every day if we would live our lives in the in the consciousness, in, in the realization, in light of what God has done for us once and for all in Christ, would that not impact how we live each day of our lives? Remember how the hymn writer put it, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. How often do we survey the wondrous cross? How often do you, dear friend, survey the wondrous cross? 
Remember how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And where do Paul's thoughts go? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Every moment of Paul's life was shaped by his remembering what Christ had done for him, a wretched sinner, once and for all on the cross. He loved me and gave his life for me. So as we think back even over this past week, how often have we surveyed the wonder of the cross even in this past week? We get busy, our schedules get full, we run here and there and everywhere, we're on the phone, we're running the, the rat race of life, so to speak, and that once and for all climactic event will find it evading our thoughts for one day, two days, and three days. Dear friends, may we survey the wondrous cross each morning, each day, and each evening. That idea as well speaks to the importance of, of worship. It speaks to the importance of being attentive to, to worship week in and week out. Because we do, like lost sheep, go astray this day, the next day, the next day. But God in His mercy and His grace has given us the rhythm of the week that we go off for six days out into this world. And we get battered around by the world and then Lord's Day after Lord's Day we are drawn back. We are nourished. We are built up. We feed week after week on the spiritual meat that is the Word of God. But it also it reminds us to be in God's Word daily, to be in God's Word every day, to give the Lord the, the best portion of our mind, to give the Lord the best and first portion of our heart, because we do, we are so prone to wander, to wander away from our Good Shepherd. So first, in verses 1 through 3, the people look back. They remember. And then secondly, they pray. They petition the Lord. Look at the language that's used here in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4, restore us again, O Lord. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? Verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord. There's an earnestness. There's an intensity to this section. God's people are pleading, as the Puritans would say, they are storming the gates of heaven for the Lord to once again restore them and revive them. A couple things to note under this second broad heading. Look back at verse 4. Look at how they refer to the Lord. Restore us again, uh, restore us again O God of our salvation. And look down to verse 7. Verses 4 and verse 7 are brackets. They bracket the second middle section. Look down at verse 7. Show us your steadfast love and grant us your salvation. Restore us, God of our salvation, and grant us your salvation. I want you to note the God-centeredness of their prayer. The God-centeredness of their plea. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, verse 4, and grant us your salvation, verse 7. Now, we do need to keep in mind that there is a personalness, if I can make up a word, there's a personal aspect to their prayer. The little pronoun us 
appears six times in these four verses. And so they are praying that they themselves revive us, restore us, be near to us, O God of our salvation. But, but sandwiching or bracketing the, 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 the us, the pronoun, is the, the unqualified God-centeredness of their petition. Grant us, O God of our salvation. Give us once again your salvation. And the point is this. We don't revive ourselves. We don't restore ourselves. God is the one who does the work. He is the God of salvation. He is the God of restoration. The psalmist points not to himself, but he points the people back to the Lord, to the one who does the work. Think of that great chapter, Ezekiel chapter 37. That, that image of the, the valley of dry bones, those bones are dead. And, and, and the prophet begins to pray, he begins to pray and to preach to those bones. And what happened? The, the Spirit of the Lord comes rushing through the scene and the bones begin to rattle around. And, and the Spirit again begins to, to, to attach those bones one to another. Life is brought in to those dry bones through the Spirit of the Lord. Or Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God is the one who restores. He is the one who revives. He is the one who does that great work. Look at verse 5. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to, to your, your anger to all generations? The psalmist is in effect saying, Lord, I know that you're in the business of bringing your people back to you. You're in the business of restoring your people. You don't delight in rebuking us. Will you not revive us again? To paraphrase the psalmist, uh, I would suggest this gives us insight into the character of God. God is a God who is merciful. He's a personal God who hears the prayers of his people and who longs to be at work in their heart. The psalmist knows that God is slow to anger. That God is, is, not, is not sitting around waiting to be angry with his people. Yes, he chastises us when we need it. He disciplines us when we need it all for our good. But the it is not one of God, uh, of God rejoicing in bringing chastisement and discipline to his people, but rather God rejoices in bringing his people back to himself. Put it this way, for God to be angry with his people forever is contrary to his character. The psalmist says, will you be angry forever? Knowing full well that is not the God that we worship. That is not the God that we serve. That is not the God who, who is at work in our hearts and in our lives. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. We could put it this way. The psalmist knows the God to whom he's praying. And he knows that he is not a God who will be angry forever. But he is a God who is slow to mercy, abounding in steadfast love, who delights in restoring and reviving his wayward, tired, disheartened, and discouraged people. Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. 
Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So first, the psalmist looks back. He directs the people back to what God has done in their lives in history. Secondly, he prays. In light of what God has done, he knows who God is. He prays. He pleads, God, will you be angry forever? Will you not restore us again? Lord, will you revive us at this very moment? Give us your spirit. Give us a a, a special measure of grace. Bring us back to you. You are the God of restoration. And then thirdly, in verses 8 through 13, the psalmist looks forward. He looks forward. And he does so with with, with two different angles, if you will, with a a, a patient waiting and an expectant hoping. Note those two, two, two sides. Patiently waiting and expectantly hoping. In verses 8 and 9, the psalmist waits on the Lord. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Let me hear, let me wait to how the Lord will hear and how he will answer our pleas. This is similar to what the prophet Habakkuk says. In that famous verse, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what God will say to me. So the psalmist, like the prophet Habakkuk, waits and listens to hear from the Lord. But then look at what he says in verse 8. For he will speak peace to his people. He will speak peace. It doesn't say he might speak peace. It doesn't say perhaps he's going to speak peace. He will speak peace to his people. In other words, God will do this work. He will hear. He will answer. He will answer their petition, their pleas that they made in verses 4 through 7. And his answer will be one of peace. But again, dear friends, we know, living on this side of the cross, what the psalmist doesn't know. We know that God has spoken. We know the the answer in the fullest picture. We know the grand drama, the grand answer that God gives in this psalm, that the answer centering on the cross of Christ. We know that God has spoken, that he has spoken peace to his people. Jesus says in John 14, 27, I give you peace. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, but I give you my peace. John 16, 33, I say these things to you so that in me you might have peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, He himself, Jesus, is our peace. God has spoken peace to us once and for all. And the question is, are we listening? Are we listening? Are we listening, dear friends, to that word of peace that God has spoken once and for all in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we know this peace? Are we living in light of the peace that God has spoken to us once and for all in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then note the the, the complementary truth in verses 8 and 9. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. So the psalmist has prayed in verses 4 through 7. He, He has pleaded 
uh, passionately for the Lord to restore him, to revive him. And now the posture is one of waiting. It's a posture of waiting for the Lord to speak his word of peace to his people. But his waiting patiently is not the same as waiting idly. Patiently waiting is not idly waiting. There is a difference. God's people, as we wait, we are to walk by faith. We are to walk humbly. We are to walk faithfully, awaiting what the Lord is going to do. We are to lead lives of repentance, lives of holiness, lives of faithfulness, as we wait to hear, as we wait for Him to answer and to speak His words of peace to us. So for those of you tonight who are here, maybe you're tired. I have no doubt there's some weary saints here this evening. Perhaps you're down. It feels like the Lord has turned His face from you. We know the, the pattern of life. We feel as if we're in that one step forward and two steps back kind of, kind of routine. Remember the lessons of this psalm. Remember these Israelites who had returned from exile. They found themselves discouraged, oppressed, beaten down, disheartened. They were facing trials and persecution from both without and from within their own ranks. And so what lessons does this psalm have for us? To look back and to remember the cross. Remember the cross and how the Lord brought that glorious reality to bear in your own heart and in your own life. And then today, even tonight, plead with God. Be patient, but don't be idle. Plead with Him. Uh, like Jacob, go to the mat with your heavenly Father. Wrestle with Him like Jacob, praying to the God of salvation to revive that glorious work in your own heart and in your own soul. And then lastly, patiently Wait on the Lord. He will speak peace to His saints. As we close, there's one final point I want to make. I mentioned how there were two angles to this forward look of the psalmist. There's patiently waiting on the one hand, and then secondly, there is expectantly hoping on the other. And we see this expectant hope in the last four verses of the psalm, verses 10 through 13. These are beautiful, poetic verses. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Now these verses we know will find their ultimate fulfillment in one place. These verses will find their ultimate fulfillment at the second coming when our Lord Jesus comes back and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a description of what marks the kingdom of God. Look at the adjectives described here. Peace, righteousness, faithfulness, love. This is what we long for. This is what we hope for. This is what we pray for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. Yes, we have a taste of it now. We have a, a, a foretaste, a sampling of it now. It would be gone and ushered in with the first coming and the death and resurrection of our Lord at the cross, we might say. 
uh, that uh, love and faithfulness meet, that righteousness and peace kissed one another at the cross of Christ. But the main course, the feast, if you will, awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth when our Lord returns. This is something that our fallen world knows nothing about. Steadfast love, true peace, faithfulness. These are things, this is the message of the kingdom of God, of the city of God, not the city of man, not the cities of this world. So our hope, our expectant hope is this hope, is this hope that will be brought in once and for all when our Lord Jesus returns to bring us back to himself. This is not wishful thinking, but a sure hope. In that consummated kingdom, when the Lord returns, there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sadness. There'll be no more laboring day in and day out, but eternal, perfect, face-to-face fellowship with our Savior. No more sin. No more sorrow. Look at the imagery in verse 11. Have you, have, you, have you caught the imagery in the scene in verse 11 before? Faithfulness does what? Springs up from the ground. Righteousness, what is it doing? Looks down from the sky. If you note that imagery, faithfulness comes up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky coming from the bottom up and from the sky down. In other words, everywhere you look is going to be marked by faithfulness, righteousness, perfect peace, perfect love, perfect justice, because there'll be no more sin, no more sadness, no more sorrow. Christ will be all in all and his kingdom will be forever. Calvin puts it this way. There will be no corner of the earth where these qualities do not flourish. This is our hope, our expectant hope, dear brother and sister. So this psalm is a psalm for the Christian life. As I said, it's a psalm for those who take one step forward and then feel as if they're taking two steps backward the next week and the next day. How we live in this world amidst the disappointments, amidst the sadness, amidst the trials of life in a fallen world. What do we do? We look back. We live in light of the cross, remembering the once and for all finished work of our Savior in His death and in His resurrection. Secondly, we passionately plead for daily restoration, for daily revival, for the presence of God to be at work and manifest in our hearts and in our lives this day, tomorrow, the next day, the next month, and the next year. And then finally, we look forward. We look forward with patience, knowing that God will hear and He will answer in His perfect timing. But at the same time, we look forward with hope, with a sure hope. Our patience is measured by our sure hope. That just as sure as Christ came and He died and He rose for us, so surely is He coming again. Is He coming again? 
in which there will be perfect faithfulness, perfect love, perfect justice, perfect righteousness coming from the ground up and from the sky down. Everywhere we look, we will be inflamed with the glory of our Savior. And that, dear friends, is our sure hope for this day and forevermore. Praise God for His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this psalm, a psalm that reminds us to look backwards, to look back to the cross of Christ, a psalm that reminds us to be wrestling with You daily in prayer, praying that You would give us a fresh filling of Your Spirit, that You would restore us and revive us day by day because, Father, we know that we are tired, we are prone to wander, we are weak, we are sinful. Father, this psalm also reminds us to look forward, knowing that You, will, you always hear and that You always answer. And help us to be patient, O oh Lord. We, we confess how hard it is to patiently wait upon You. But at the same time, we look forward with a sure and certain hope for the, that day when you will come, consummating, perfectly fulfilling your kingdom. So that everywhere that we look, every corner, every inch of the new heaven and the new earth will be inflamed with the glory of our Savior. That is our longing, our sure hope. Father, we need your spirit to impress that truth deep into our hearts. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.